Well, as always, thank you so much to all of those who have helped for our worship service, for Jim Ritterbush, who was our uh, liturgist this morning, for our praise team and Wesley Choir, who've led our music, and for Gary Brubaker, who puts things together for us. Thank you. So we are doing this deep dive through the book of Esther, and maybe the book of Esther and the story of Esther is really familiar to you, and maybe it's not. Maybe you know just a little bit about it, or maybe you know nothing about it. Um, so even wherever it is, wherever you are on that spectrum, um, hopefully you'll hear something new and surprising. Um, I don't know how many times I've read through the book of Esther, and in preparing for this sermon, I have learned a lot of things that I didn't know before. And there's a variety of perspectives that I hadn't considered. So hopefully there'll be something new that you hear um, and the way that it speaks to you. So we're taking this deep dive through the book of Esther, learning about the story, what it means, and what it has to say to us for such a time as this. Would you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, again, maybe, um, maybe you know a lot about this story of Esther, or maybe you don't know anything at all. Um, maybe all that you know is that it's a book in the Bible, or maybe you didn't even know that. Um, so Esther is a book in the Bible. It's, uh, it's what's referred to as wisdom literature, which means that it's a story that has a point to it. Now, what that also means is that there is some doubt um, by, by some scholars that Esther, um, a woman named Esther actually existed. Now, for some people to hear that, that's devastating. And I'll be honest with you, one time I said that in a Bible study and I got kicked out. Um, actually, no, I just had to have a special meeting and my um, teaching privileges were revoked for a short time. But anyway, um, uh, sometimes I think that we can get stuck in details of the story and miss the story. And I think the important part about Esther is the story. And there are details in there that I think help to enhance the story. So, Let's kind of look through these first few chapters, um, and I'll tell you the story of Esther and some of the details that, um, that I think are important, but also uh, I'll invite you to read the book of Esther and, um, and to see what it speaks to you as well, what details you find or what questions rise up for you. Um, so um, here's, here's the story of Esther, at least the first few chapters. Um, so it starts with the king, um, and the king, um, Azuzerus, or Xerxes, um, depending on which translation you're reading, um, uh, is the king at the time, and he's used to getting what he wants, as most kings do around that time, and especially the king is known for throwing these really lavish parties, um, really lavish parties. I mean, think about like the most the biggest party you ever went to and multiply that by like 50. Um, so he's known for these lavish parties. And in particular, the party that is referred to in the book of Esther at the very beginning, this particular party lasted for six months. Like, can you imagine a party going for six months? So this is a really long, really big, really lavish, expensive party. Um, and one of the traditions and one of like the, 
I don't know, I guess unspoken rules or one of the traditions about parties or eating and drinking in general is that no one could drink unless the king drinks. Um, and if the king drinks, you had to drink. So you couldn't um, drink any wine unless the king did. And if the king did, then, then you had to. So, you know, these the king kind of sets the tone for everything. Um, now, the king lifted this restriction and everyone was allowed to drink um, however, whenever, whatever they wanted. And so they did. Um, and over, uh, over time, um, that was quite a bit. Um, and everyone had partaken quite a bit. Um, you can imagine the merriment. Um, there was, you know, lots going on. Um, and so, you know, the king is intoxicated. Everyone else is intoxicated. Um, they're having a good time. It's a great party. Um, and the king is married to this woman named Vashti. Vashti is the queen. Um, and Vashti was a looker, apparently. Um, she was quite beautiful. And so the king wanted to show her off to the party. And so invited her to come to the party wearing her crown. Which seems like, you know, a, an innocent request, right? Come to the party. Let me show you off as my trophy wife. Um, the end. But here's the thing. Um, the king asked Vashti to come wearing her crown. And only her crown. And Vashti's like, mm -mm, I don't want to. Uh, well, actually, we don't even know why she doesn't want to. Um, but she refuses. She says no, and I gotta be honest, I mean, I would say no, right? I mean, you've got this kind of out of control, lavish party. Anyway, we can assume a lot of reasons why. But in the end, Vashti says no. I'm not going to come and dance in front of your friends wearing my crown, wearing only my crown. Um, <clears throat> and uh, this is not something the king is used to. Um, the king doesn't hear no. And so this no from Vashti is humiliating and it makes him very angry. Um, and so he banishes her from the kingdom, um, which actually doesn't seem to be that huge of a punishment to me. I mean, she didn't want to be around him anyway. So this is kind of like, I don't want to be around you. Fine, you're banished. Um, anyway, banishes her from the kingdom, but not only that, he, um, he then makes an edict for the whole kingdom that women should be submissive to men. Um, so uh, his personal hurt and humiliation turned into vindictiveness for everyone. And actually, that's pretty, um, pretty par for the course for this king, that's his, his MO, is to take a personal spat and turn it into a spat between everyone or um, how he's feeling, he makes everyone feel. So that's how this book starts. 
Now, um, there is about four years that lapses between chapter one and chapter two of Esther, which, I mean, when you read it, it doesn't feel like it takes that long in between. Like, it kind of feels like maybe this is like the next day, but it's actually quite a bit of time. The book of Esther uh, actually takes place over a long period of time in general. So between chapter one and chapter two, it's been maybe around four years. And um, the king has had another humiliating defeat in a battle against Greece. Um, and in this humiliation, he's reminded about his um, humiliating loss to Vashti or of Vashti. Um, and so his advisors advise him that, you know what, you should find a new, better, and more beautiful queen. So he decides to hold a beauty pageant to choose his next wife which um, that's often how this is, is portrayed in the book of Esther, that it's this beauty pageant. Um, and that's actually not really a, a fair description of what happened. So it's less of a beauty pageant and more of the king rounding up all of the eligible young women, the young virgins in the kingdom, um, and requiring them to come to this pageant. Um, so it's pretty... Um, it's not voluntary. You are in or you're not. Um, and so these women are rounded up and uh, they're told that they're going to spend one night with the king and um, it's going to be for him to decide um, which one he likes the best to become his new wife or his new queen. Um, and again, that seems, maybe that seems to you like, Okay, like, they're just going to chat, get to know each other. Um, they're not just chatting. So um, these, um, these women are being forced to spend a night with the king um, to, to do whatever he wants them to do. Um, and so what that means is the one that he likes the best, he says, will be his queen. But all of the others they become his concubines. Um, so if the king decides, mm, not good enough to be my queen, um, she's not eligible to be then anybody else's wife. So she's his concubine for the rest of his life, uh, for the rest of her life. Um, so either way, all of these women become property of the king. So they all lose, they lose their freedom to become enslaved, really, by the king. So um, it's not a beauty contest that anyone would actually really want to win, um, and they really didn't get a choice in participating either. So one of these women um, included a Jewish girl named Esther. And um, this, this part of the story takes place during a time when Jewish people were in exile from their, their land and they were in danger of being killed. So Esther's uncle, Mordecai, advised her to keep her heritage and her family a secret for her safety. Um, Mordecai comes up a lot um, throughout the book of Esther. So after some beauty treatments, um, it was Esther's night with the king. And... He was impressed. 
um, in Esther chapter two, verses 17, it says that the king loved her more. Um, but that word love really isn't how that word should be translated. It's probably more like it should be translated to lusted after her more. Um, so this wasn't really love. It was more of a lust. Um, so Esther becomes the queen, uh, but she didn't realize, she didn't reveal to uh, the king or anyone else that she was Jewish when she was chosen. So she's crowned queen, and her uncle Mordecai and Esther thought that this would keep them both safe should the king ever turn against the Jewish people. Then um, Mordecai um, heard about a plot to kill the king. Um, and he heard about it while he was at the city gate, which actually um, shows that Mordecai is probably pretty higher up in ranking um, and working for the king. So you don't just sit at the city gate if you don't have some reason to be there or some sort of privilege to be there. So um, he heard about this plot to kill the king by two of the king's servants. Um, there were two eunuchs who were planning to kill the king. Now, um, this actually really wasn't a huge surprise given the king's treatment of people. Um, eunuchs were also pretty much enslaved. So um, uh, just to, there's a lot of improper treatment of people that's, how, like, that, that's going on this. So it's not that unusual to hear that there's a plot of people who have been wronged to try and assassinate the one that they've been wronged. Um, but, but, and Mordecai struggles with this, right? Um, because he's heard this plot. He has, um, he's like, what do I do with this? Like he knows the king isn't great, but he doesn't really want to be a part of this. And he also knows what the punishment will be for these two who have already been wronged. And so it's the struggle of what do I do? Um, so ultimately he tells Esther who tells the king um, and the two eunuchs, were punished. Um, they were impaled, so they were thrown on top of a spear or like a stick. Beautiful. Um, and um, uh, this actually continues to show just how violent and vengeful and spiteful the king is. So it just gives a clearer, uh, it just gives a better picture of who this king is. So Mordecai then is put on the king's good list. Gold star for you, Mordecai. Um, but the king, so the king writes it, or someone writes it down for the king, like, Mordecai, good person. And then they close the book and they put it away and the king forgot about it for a while. Um, uh, five years, like about five years, actually. Can you imagine like, oh, this man saved my life. Great. Done um, for five years. Um, so it comes up later. Spoiler alert. Um, in chapter three, we're introduced to Haman. Um, and Haman was, so just a little bit of background about who Haman was. Haman was an Agite, um, and he, he and his people had a long history with the Jewish people, and it wasn't a good one. Haman is a descendant of King Agog, who was supposed to have been killed by Saul, but Saul didn't kill him. Um, and let him live. Uh, God instructed Saul to kill King Agog. He didn't, um, and let him live. Um, the prophet Samuel ended up killing King Agog when he realized that Saul didn't. So this is kind of the background. So the already soured relationship between the Agites and the Jewish people 
um, that was made a little bit worse uh, by this murderous plot. Um, so Haman hates the Jewish people uh, for generations and generations of tension and bad feelings. Uh, so this is who Haman is, and he's promoted to be King Xerxes or Asusurus, uh, his number two guy. And then Mordecai, Esther's uncle, comes by, sees Haman. Um, Haman's number two. He's supposed to bow to him, but Mordecai's like, mm, no, not gonna. Um, he refuses to bow to Haman, which ticks Haman off, right? Um, and then he learns that Mordecai is Jewish, which makes him even more furious. And so Haman launches this plan of genocide for all of the Jewish people. So he wants to kill all of the Jewish people, comes up with this plan for genocide, and, the, and then brings it to the king. Is like, hey, should we do this? And the king's like, sure, why not? I mean, there really isn't a lot to that. So whether the king, um, the king realized what he was doing, we don't know. Ultimately, the king agrees to it. Um, and so Haman used a dice called a purr um, to decide when this would happen. So they like threw a dice to decide when all of the Jewish people would be killed in genocide. Um, and it ended up on the 12th month of the year. And so they started this on the first month of the year, planning and preparing. And then on the 12th month, so there's 12 months that will pass before Haman's plan comes to fruition. Um, so that's the time length of this plan. Um, so in a year or 12 months, all of the Jewish, all of the Jewish people will be killed. Um, and now the 12th month of the year, uh, the 12th month was during Passover, which is one of the high holy festivals of the Jewish people. So it's adding insults to injury. And Mordecai relays this news to Esther, who seems to have no idea that this is coming, which isn't, you know, uncommon. She's not aware of the king's plans. She's kind of in her own little secluded area. Um, and so Mordecai tells Esther, you have to do something about this. You have to do something about this. For such a time as this, you have been called. And as Esther decides what she's going to do, Mordecai organizes the Jewish people to pray and fast for God's action. And then Esther rounds up all of her courage and bravery to use her position to save her people. Spoiler alert. Um, and we'll talk about that plan and that, how she did that going forward. But um, that's where we are so far in the first few books. Like the book of Esther is so wild. It is so full of drama and intrigue. Um, <clears throat> and the book of Esther was written, um, it was set during the Persian Empire um, around 486 to 465 BCE. Um, and it tells the story of a Jewish woman who saves her people from genocide. Now, the book of Esther um, as you read it, um, it doesn't mention God. It doesn't mention the covenant, the Torah, Jerusalem. Um, the closest it comes is when um, the people fast and pray. Um, and yet, so none of those important parts are mentioned, but it's still contained in the Old Testament. The Greek uh, version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, tried to fix this problem by adding some prayers and songs to God, but those are not found in the original text. Um, and Esther is the only book not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So Esther tells this story um, of community, 
It tells the story of religious intolerance, of xenophobia, um, of affirming Jewish identity and empowering the Jewish people to defend themselves. And at the end of the book, it also gives instructions on the celebration of the festival Purim. Um, so that's what's happening throughout the book and in these first few chapters. Um, so that's the what happens so far anyway, but why? <laughs> what's in the book and what's not in the book? But there's always that why question. Like, why does this book still exist? If it never mentions God, why is it in the Bible? And these and others are really good questions. And these and others are the kinds of questions that we get to ask to help understand more about God and more about how we view God. And the truth is, stories about our lives, about lives of people, are complicated. We don't always get to know or understand what's happening. Now, it seems like if you read this, the story of Esther, like being a queen should be a good thing, right? Like you want to be queen, you want to have that power, but there's so much more going on behind the scenes of how she was chosen and why she was chosen and the treatment of people. Um, there's so much more that's happening that maybe we don't see. The same is true in our own lives or in the lives of others. There's so much happening that we may not see or understand. And our stories help to shape us for better or for worse. Now, where is God in the book of Esther? Because God isn't mentioned throughout the book of Esther. So does that mean that God isn't there? A few years ago, I remember talking to someone who said, oh, thank God God is back in that place. And I thought, when, when wasn't God in there? Because by saying God is back means, implies that there was a time that God wasn't there. And is that really true? Are there places that God is not? And I'm just not sure that I agree with that theologically. I mean, are there places that God is not? Because I believe that God is with us at all times, in all places, in all, in all ways, that God is with us at all times, even if we don't recognize it, God is there. In Genesis 28, Jacob makes the statement, surely God was in this place and I was not aware of it. And I think that happens more than we really know. God is there and I was not aware of it. So is God present in the book of Esther, even if God is not mentioned by name? I mean, I think so. I think that we can see where God is working through the story, even in the parts that are difficult. God never leaves us orphaned. For such a time as this, Esther, Esther has been through some trauma in her story. And when presented with the opportunity to save her people, she just isn't sure. Self-preservation is the default answer, which honestly, that makes sense. She doesn't want to risk losing her own life. And Mordecai convinces Esther to do the hard thing by reminding of her, of her purpose, her call, for such a time as this. We all have hard things to do. It might be forgiveness or reconciliation with people, our call to ministry, our call to life, stepping outside of our comfort zones. And maybe we don't find ourselves in the same place as Esther is saving people from genocide. And yet, sometimes the work that we do saves others. 
How we live our life matters, not just in what we don't do, but in what we do. How we listen and respond to God's call, even when people say that we're ridiculous or tell us, you know, that's, that's ridiculous or that's dumb or it can't make a difference. It matters. How we treat one another as children of God, not just the people who live in our same neighborhood or same town, but how do we talk about human beings? Do we talk about them as humans or do we give them other names? Is every individual an individual of sacred worth or do we have some that we see as more worthy than others? How do we see one another? For such a time as this, You know, I wish that the Bible was relevant for today's life, right? The story of Esther still speaks to us today and asks some of the same questions of us. Do you need permission to do what God's calling you to do for such a time as this? You can do it. It's not too hard because the truth is you can do hard things. It's not absurd. And even if it is, absurd times call for absurd amounts of love. You can make a difference for such a time as this. You can do that because God is with you. Surely God is in this place and I didn't even recognize it. So may you hear the call of God to you. May you know that God is always with you And may you have the strength to say, here I am for such a time as this. May you know that for such a time as this, you are called. And may you know that yes, you can do that. For surely God is in this place and I didn't even recognize it for such a time as this. Thanks be to God. Amen.